People used to build consulting businesses and then eventually turn those into product businesses. In doing so, you figure out what people really care about. Well, we knew what problem we wanted to solve. We didn't know how to solve it. And so we called those same interviewees back and we said, hey, can we work with you to solve this problem space? We'll do things by hand as long as we can work with you and have access to your raw data. And then they're like, hey, would you want that automated? We went through this motion over that year and a half working with different prospects and customers to make sure we had something that people cared about before we went. I'm Pep Lau. Don't do fluff. Don't do filler. I don't do emojis. What I do is study winners at B2B SaaS because I want to know how much is strategy, how much is luck, and how do they win. This week, Andrew Lau, co-founder and CEO of Jellyfish, which enables leaders to measure, improve, and communicate the investment they're making in their engineering teams. Jellyfish was just named to the Forbes Next Billion Dollar Startups of 2023 list. In this episode, Andrew breaks down how his team noticed the growing investment companies made in engineering and helped them organize how they work, the way Salesforce helped organize how sales teams work. Let's get into it. It's easy to think that today all businesses understand sales. Uh, I don't think that was always true. In the late 90s, sales was a black art. You say, hey, I hope and wish these guys and gals are going to close the quarter. They say, trust me, we're going to make them nine bucks. It'll be great. And they'll miss and it'll be really hard. Then you look at Salesforce, what shows up in 04, probably on the back of Seaball, and the time, and not everybody's ready to go use it. By the time you get to 2010 or 2011, like every VC is blogging about CAC and LTB. Every business now understands call to close ratios, the pipeline ratios. Sales cycles, like how long they take, they understand where leads are broken, different segments of all of these things. Now the companies understand how sales machinery works. We're willing to actually push more money into it because they understand where the machinery is stuck. I think Salesforce helped to create that or it benefited from it. And so we look at software engineering. I would argue that software engineering today is what sales are really like in 04 in the sense that businesses don't understand how to engage with it. I think part of the journey is, can we do what Salesforce did for sales? Can we both build a platform to help people understand um, how the team is actually doing for the purpose of building confidence and bi-directional communication? And the net goal of actually helping companies win. You conducted some 50, 60 interviews to validate the idea before you set out to build it. Amongst the three of us, we had to go interview people, VP, CTOs, stuff like that. We interviewed 50 something of them. And by the time we actually got to three or four in, I was like, wow, it turns out everybody has this challenge when you're leading big engineering teams around how the business doesn't understand. It's very hard to communicate the two sides of it. And the team doesn't understand the business. It's very hard to translate the other direction too. Viscerally see a yearning for a solution in that space. That's what got me did to the other 40 or something interviews build further conviction to make sure there's a real thing here for us to go do. Tell me about the journey from $0 to a first million in revenue. Let's go negative zero all the way back. Me, David, Philip, I've known each other for 24 years. These guys hired me in 1999 for another company. I joined them at this company at eight people, and I got to see it go to 550. We ended up selling it to Oracle for over a billion dollars. So it was an incredible journey. It gave me the startup bud. One of the takeaways was how much I valued working with people and being on the journey together with a crew. The likeliness of us crossing paths, being able to work with people you really want 20 years ago is very unlikely. Because life happens. We go in different geographies. People go into different things, tap out of the game. But we found ourselves available again in 2016. We acknowledged the rarity of that and said, hey, let, let's try doing something together. 
I remember sitting in a in a restaurant in downtown Boston. We sat there in a you know proverbial napkin or a Mac notes and wrote down a bunch of stuff that we wanted to make out of this whole space. And what kind of company we want to build? Half was about culture and people. And we also wrote a bunch of stuff around the business. And the business was B2B, innovation-centric, new markets, able to touch a lot of people or in BC speak, big TAM. These were criteria we used to sift through the concepts of things that we actually wanted to do. The jellyfish idea itself was born out of a funny conversation. I think uh, Phil goes, which one of us is going to do the engineering thing this time? I think David Ackler knows our figure. Like, not me. I forget which one of us said it. We're like, the job is effing hard. People are always yelling at you because they don't understand the business and engineering business. When you're running a big engineering team, you grab both sides and say, trust me. Phil goes, why hasn't anyone done what Salesforce did for sales for engineering? So he rhetorically posed that question to answer why there's no data. And that became the kernel of the germ that became Jellyfish. The before zero question. How long did it take you to build a product? When did it go to market? And what were the key challenges? We worked on the product sans revenue for a couple of years. In the early aughts, he needed to raise big numbers because it took a lot of money to build things. And, and, and the good part of the world today is you can build things in an incremental fashion that's a little faster. But early aughts, he still had to raise that. We were scared of digging in and, and building things for a few years, only to find no one caring. So we tried to flip the script a little bit. If you go back to that late 90s, early 2000s, People used to build consulting businesses and then eventually turn those into product. And it can be a very capital efficient way to build a business. And because in doing so, you figure out what people really care about. Part of it is learning which contracts to take out, which ones not to, because you need to have a roadmap at where you want to go and you can choose your business to overlay into that. So we took inspiration from that motion, raised some seed capital. We weren't running services for the sake of making money. In fact, we weren't really taking revenue. We assumed that while we knew what problem we wanted to solve, we didn't know how to solve it. And so we called those same interviewees back and we said, hey, can we work with you to solve this problem space? We'll do things by hand. We'll do your report decks for you. We'll do your spreadsheets. We'll do whatever you need as long as we can work with you and have access to your raw data. We spent that first couple of years bringing concepts. You'd meet one VP or CTO who would do something great. I'm like, hey, would you want that automated? Because that first by hand. And the interesting part is I think a lot of heads of engineering don't share a lot of techniques. And, and you'd hear his cool technique from somebody and you'd say, can we automate it for the next guy or gal? We meet the next guy or gal and say like, hey, does that work for you? They, they would say yes or no. We went through this motion over like a year and a half working with different prospects and customers to make sure we had something that people cared about before we went to market. That was the product part of it. And then assembly year after we pushed to founder selling. Probably the first half million of business was all founder sold. I think the founder selling is an important part to figure out. Can you prove this is a thing that people want? That was really the kind of first couple of years journey there for us around getting that thing kind of out of the garage as a real thing. Selling is an important part of product development. Here's why Combinator partner and former head of growth at Airbnb, Gustav Alströmer, explaining why. Founders should learn how to do sales. You should learn how to do sales because you'll need to learn to know your customer. Talking to customers and sales are effectively different sides of the same coin. And the same reasons founders can't understand what to build, they don't understand what the problem is. You don't know how to sell unless you know your customers. Two, learning how to do sales actually gives you full control of your destiny as a startup. Just like you can't outsource engineering, sales has to be part of the DNA of the founders. Sometimes you just have to learn it. As a result, you should not hire a sales team until you know how to do sales yourself. Only then will you know what good looks like. You also can't do sales if the product is bad and you won't know the product is bad unless you've had 
some effort in trying to sell it first. As you're running the demo, um, your goal is to close your first customers. You want to ask a lot of questions up front in the demos. And it's the founders who should do the demos because you are the one knowing the product and you know the customer pain points. You used the founder-led sales the first 500K or so. Yeah. What changed after that? We had an advisor that pushed us to bring in a couple of BDRs really helpful because I think it's important to get repetitions outside of your network on that stuff. During that time frame, we started doing that. And, and through those summer sales, we built conviction around what price point we should be selling at. And a lot of go-to-market motions, yes, the market will tell you, but you also have to pick and choose with some direction, just like product growth. Early on, you don't know what it should be, but you have choices along the way to nudge it. And the market will push you back, but you can set it in a direction you want. And the same goes to go to market. Some people thought we should be selling some figure deals. We felt mid-market five or lowest six figure was a price point that we wanted to play. We had to prove it was a better selling to see if that's true or not. And then having that kind of business development team had kind of helped us do repetitions to figure out where the market was, and those things. Once we started finding that conviction that helped us figure out the first sellers we want to bring on um, and the sales leadership that can scale this, getting our first seller in the door, you know, second seller in the door, and then being our head of sales and pulling that out. Once you start having emotion, you can start repeating it. So I don't want to use the word repeatable like it was magic, but you you can start figuring out who is in this profile, who can we get in this, like, have they sold in it, like in that five, six figure thing? Have they sold to a technical audience? Can they repeat or expand what we've been doing? Once you know that, you can talk about marketing different from PLG self-service marketing. Those are really divergent marketing tacks. Understanding those things, I think are really important along the journey. And, and, and that, that helped us unlock it. Deciding whether you sell it to small or medium businesses, the mid market or enterprise has huge implications on how you should set up your company. What channels you use? Will you have BDRs? How long is the sales cycle? How much you can charge? And so on. Delifish decided to go after the mid market companies. Here's Vanto's Chief Revenue Officer, Stevie Case, talking about the mid-market. Truth is that, you know, mid-market is that middle ground. What is it? Every company may define it differently. Some define it by headcount of the company they're selling to. Some define it by revenue. These may not apply in your business. And typically what companies do is define the mid-market as that in-between, between the SMB space, the small-medium business space, and the enterprise. And typically those lines get set on either boundary based on the buying behavior of who you're selling to. So if you're selling into companies and their buying behavior changes around 50 employees, you may draw the line there. If it changes around 5,000 employees, you may draw the upper bound there. This can be very specific to your business. And really, why would you care? Why would you want to sell into this middle ground? Well, it's particularly relevant right now in the economic climate we're in. The unit economics in the mid-market can be much more attractive than in SMB. These are folks that have money. They have budget. They're typically growing. There's a lot good happening here. These companies are also usually more stable than an SMB profile, but they also move fast, unlike an enterprise. You can run into scenarios in the mid-market where you've got a single decision maker who will make a buying decision for millions of dollars in a very quick time frame that you won't see in the enterprise. So. It's worthwhile to chase this segment, particularly at a time like this. In 2020, you quintupled your revenue and the year after you tripled it. What do you attribute the growth to? What did you yeah. do to get those amazing results? I think I always talk about luck. I've learned that luck is actually code word for timing. Timing is not a thing you can control. I, I go back and, and say, what the hell happened? Because it's not like we changed our positioning. It's not like we 
changed our product, but the activation actually happened. And then look, none of us had ever wished a pandemic. It's insane. But one byproduct of it is everyone suddenly went hybrid and everybody's asking, hey, is this team effective in this medium? Is this getting worse? Is it getting better? I don't have any understanding. So that desire to answer that question suddenly brought attention and relevance to what we do. And there's a second way the world moves towards efficiency too. to understand if we got scarce resources, are we all pointed in the same direction in the right way? Who needs help along the way? Those are vectors that I think have been tactically helpful in the last couple of years. You could probably take our pitch deck from 17 and use it today to three slides long. It's still relevant today. I'm actually proud of it because I think the macro statement we have in that deck still holds today. Yeah, software is expensive. It's 40% of OPEX. It's the most strategic department. It's making the things that we sell. It's deeply important and structurally it hasn't changed. In fact, that's compounded. It's not like we're smarter or cooler than the last guy or gal who did this. Timing is such a big part. Are we chewy or cuts.com? It's all relative to what decade you're in. So you have to ask yourself why now? The why now that we have in there is one of a technical substrate, the possibility, which is that all teams now in engineering are doing some form of agile, whether it's Scrum, Kanban, Safe, whatever your flavor. And they're all using digital tools for this. So they're using GitHub type things, Jira type things, and it's all in the cloud. So that, that sets the stage that you can do these things. But the most important part is that, frankly, engineering has gotten expensive. You could argue this is challenging and figure out how we can tie what engineering does to the business. It's a hard problem, right? We figured it for sales, figured out for marketing, figured out for success. This is the hard department here. Well, 20 years ago, it was just me and, and a couple of nerds and, and a slice of pizza in the corner. It's like 40% of teams now. It's big. So it, it's no longer uh, an elective choice. That is actually the structural force. Engineering management platform is a fast-growing category. Did it exist when you got started? Did you play a role in creating the category? It's always easier said post-facto. I don't think we're done. We spent a lot of time researching people that came 10, 15 years before us, people that had had some nascent progress in that space. Maybe we've made a dent in the baseball game analogy. I bet you're actually in inning three. What If you look at late market environments, like you might Inning, inning eight or nine in my analogy, all the companies actually have the same product, different colors, different price sheets. If you were to draw a box around what represents competition, you look at each of the things, everyone's actually offering different things. We're still attacking the world differently. I think it's still an evolving market. When you get to inning seven or inning six, there's a pre-carb unend and that stuff. We're not there yet, right? Um, the category definitely wasn't formed when we started I don't think it's formed today. We still probably have another five-year journey before we get to those later innings. Would it be accurate to say that your growth has come from the growth of the category, the increased demand for the category? It's awareness or problem space creation. It's not like suddenly more engineers showed up in the world. I think our growth is the awareness and relevance of what we do. We're like, oh, that is a problem I face and hasn't been tackled this way before. Those activations have the eye openings have been the reasons of the TAM creation, not even TAM expansion, it's TAM creation. Noticing what new tech enables is critical in business. Here's Ray Kurzweil, who founded Kurzweil Computer Products and led the development of the first OmniFund optical character recognition system. Nothing about timing with Lex Friedman. How much of a good idea is about timing? How much is it about your genius versus th that th its time has come? Timing's very important. I mean, I did OCR in the 1970s because OCR is, uh, doesn't require a lot of computation. Optical character recognition. Yeah. 
but we were able to do that in the 70s. And I waited till the 80s to, to address speech recognition, since that requires uh, more computation. You were thinking through timing when you're developing those things. Yeah. How much deliberate category marketing are you guys doing? I have too little both. There's literal demand gen that can be very quantified in pipeline. It's important for people to hear the story. We do lots of events and speaking engagement where we don't even have to say our name. I think in a category creation environment, it's more important for us to be talking about the challenges of leading engineering teams at scale than it is even to talk about jellyfish helping you because there's so much stuff that has to happen. I'll give you an analogy. Like you look at any company that, that you meet today, if you pick up the board slides, you can probably guess what's actually in the sales and marketing deck, right? You understand what the metrics are in that space. We've all figured it out. 20 years ago, it was not clear. I think engineering right now is still very nascent. Most companies, you get to the engineering part, there's not a lot of meat there. We're happy to talk about good ways to engage with your board or to engage with other operational leaders or how to actually connect with the engineers you're doing, regardless of using jellyfish. The existence of those things, like all roads will come back to essentially the awareness of what needs to be done here. But this is a thing that has to evolve in this industry. And yeah, we happen to be there. We're willing to do that stuff because it does move the needle around the conversation and what needs to happen, regardless of our name is attached to it or not. You've uh, said that a company should address the problems of tomorrow, not today. How is that impacting the way you run the business? The reality is whether you're building a new go-to-market motion, training a new seller, putting a marketing campaign together, developing some product, it's just going to take time. If you're trying to play for the needs today, it's unrealistic to actually make a debt unless you really think you can hit it in rapid fashion. But if you have to acknowledge those things take time, you have to ask yourself, well, is this problem still relevant then? And then you got to play into the timeline on that part of it. It's easy to have a kajillion ideas all the time. And a lot of panic too, because you're seeing a lot of noise out there. You said the category is still nascent. There are also some solid competitors in the space. You're linear beast, warm, plural site, and so on. Are you paying attention to what the competition is doing? And are you deliberately building some moats for the future? In general, the large majority of, of our deals are still non-competitive. And again, that really just says it's a growing market. You get to late markets, it's dog fights, and everybody is fighting over every deal. It goes to my earlier point around everyone's offerings are different. So on a given day, do I worry about anybody individually? No, because I think companies at our stage are the byproduct of the customers you trust, you choose to service, what they ask of you, where you win, where you fail in these things. And you have to decide as a founder and executive whether you're going to listen to them or not, or you can suss out the problem space in there. But that doesn't mean you necessarily want to tackle that problem. You have to pick and choose which problems you want to solve. In doing that, that drives the company. It's your choice listening to which pains dictate the evolution of the company. Competitors may be reacting to other conversations, or they may be acting to what you've said. And if you listen too hard to what they're doing, you may be chasing your own tail. There are cases where I, I think it's important to watch things like where you're competitive and where you're not, because it might teach you around evolution of the market and what's happening in that space. Are there things that are causing your customers or prospects to act differently along the way? I think it's important to listen to your customer, to your prospects, more than any specific competitor. When you look back at the last six years of growing Jellyfish, what three pieces of advice would you have for fellow B2B SaaS founders? Timing is everything. And I was with a VC friend and he was making fun of me. He's like, well, that's exactly what an operator would say. Timing is everything. 
having two markets is everything because from a VC perspective, we would say people are everything. And I think I know why it's because as operators, we have to choice timing comes along us or not. And so we can't control that part of it. The VC, they can control timing because they can choose to invest in a point in time in an industry in a market or not. So the, the access for them as a people, right? I think it, it is the same conversation. People and timing are the two combinations that has to happen. It just depends who's lens it. For, so from our satisfied perspective, I think timing's everything. Being critical of ask why now is the time to enter the market or to think about ways to elongate time so you can see a longer horizon. Um, number two, marketing matters. It's easy for product engineering folks to undervalue marketing. I, I think... You know, broad sense marketing gives you the at-bats and, and product gives you the endurance here. Um, and, and, and I think it's easy as product engineering to just assume that we make perfect stuff and things just happen. Well, I think marketing and sales activities gives you the at-bats to iterate to let, help you figure out if it actually works there. So I think it's important to fund that appropriately at different times, whether it be creating a blogging voice or investing at the right time. And then third of things take time, time inside of your control, plenty of startups fail. And often it's not because they did a bad job. It's just the timing and patience, some self-awareness to that part of it. And you shouldn't be reading media if you're like, why aren't I there? It's really about yourself, your team, your co-founders, your customers, and that journey more than any you know externalized factor. So how did Jellyfish win? First, they noticed a growing trend. Frankly, engineering has gotten expensive. You could argue this is actually a hard challenging problem to figure out how we can tie what engineering does to the business. Next, they studied their customers' needs by doing hard consulting work. So your spreadsheets will do whatever you need. Finally, they got the timing right. The category they are in is growing fast and speeds up their growth as well. I think everything. And, and I think being really critical to ask yourself why now and, and knowing it's the time to enter the market or to think about ways to elongate time so you can see a longer time horizon. And that's how you win. I'm Pip Lab. For more tips on how to win, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening.